Welcome to the Parkway Fellowship Podcast. We hope that God speaks to you through this message from guest speaker Rob Morris. It's so good to be with you again, Parkway. Really, really appreciate it. Um, I missed being with you last year. It's been two years since I've been back. Last year, um, our family during this um, time was immersed in the end of a very long process uh, of adopting um, a daughter from Vietnam, and we were in Vietnam during this time of the year last year for three weeks, and finally brought our daughter home, and she's doing extraordinarily well. Um, But I missed being with you, so it's really good uh, to be back. We deeply, deeply appreciate the partnership that we've had for years uh, with you. Those of you that are unfamiliar with Love 146, um, very quickly, we are an international human rights organization um, working to end the trafficking and exploitation of children. Um, And we do this through two specific programs. First, prevention programs uh, that looks like prevention education, and then we also uh, care for survivors, um, kids who were not prevented from being trafficked and exploited and um, helping them in the recovery process. We started in Southeast Asia. Uh, We have safe safe homes for for girls and as well as a safe home uh, for boys in the Philippines um, because this isn't something that just happens to girls. It also happens uh, to boys, and then we launched into doing survivor care into the UK and then survivor care here right here in the United States because it is something that happens uh, right here. I was just talking with Pat earlier who he was sharing with me, somebody that he knows, um, that this was happening within the context of their family. Um, So it is something that happens in our own backyard. So doing survivor care in the U.S. um, And then after doing survivor care for some time, we felt like we were not going to end this by just caring for survivors. We've got to do something uh, to prevent it. So we launched our prevention um, programs specifically uh, in the United States. And um, just an update, we've been around for about 16 years now as an organization. Um, And just our prevention education programs alone, uh, we've been able to reach about 25,000 kids right here in the United States of America. And that is what um, you are a part of. Our prevention education curriculum is now being used in 20 states, um, in public schools, in juvenile justice agencies, in child welfare agencies. That's what you enable with your generosity. When you hear about a Christmas offering, this is the teeth. Uh, that, that, cr- that is created, that actually puts a dent um, in this kind of thing. So you guys, as Parkway Fellowship, just to give you kind of an update, you've been in this with us since 2011. And are you ready for this? This is, this is amazing. Matthew and I, our, our, our director of development, who is actually here with me um, uh, at the back table, we were talking about this this week, and we just had a moment together of just being in awe of what you as a community of people have brought uh, to the table. Since 2011, Parkway Fellowship has given to the work of Love 146 $693,000 to enable us to do the work that we do. That is extraordinary. You guys basically hold the crown as far as um, generosity. And um, yeah, so since 2016, we've been able to reach about 39,000 kids um, internationally and here uh, domestically. So thank you for believing in this work. Thank you for being courageous enough uh, to not turn away from something that is so painful, like the exploitation and trafficking of children, but actually engaging in a meaningful way through your generosity. We deeply, uh, deeply appreciate it. Oftentimes people say, 
what else can I do? Are there for more practical ways that we can get involved? Here are three things if you want to check this out. Um, some of you probably pray, I would assume. So if you're the praying type, and I know there's a lot of people actually that are part of this fellowship that are part of this prayer team. Um, we have a prayer team all over the place that when something happens, um, usually it's an emergency type situation or whatever, we're able to send a text to our prayer team and immediately people start praying. Maybe once or twice a month you'll get this text. If you text love146 to that number, 411247, um, you'll receive these prayer uh, requests um, throughout the year. And again, we won't bombard you. It'll be maybe once a month, sometimes twice a month. Sometimes it'll be a celebratory text saying, hey, thank you for your prayers. This is what just happened. Um, because of your prayers, there's a difference being uh, made. So we'd love for you to consider being part of our prayer team. Another way that you can work with us is partnering with us on a monthly basis. This is the lifeblood of our organizations. Our, month, our monthly sponsors, people that support the, the, um, a, an amount of money every month um, basically enable us to strategize well because we can depend on this is what is coming in um, to the organization. And so it's really the lifeblood of our organization. We're always in need of more monthly partners. If you're interested in that, again, talk to us afterwards um, at our table. And then mobilize by joining a volunteer group. I mean, we have volunteer groups right here in your area. Some of you have been involved with that. Some of you have been connected to our Reimagine resale store. Um, here in Houston, um, giving of your stuff to be able to, um, to, to sell in our store that enables us to, again, fund um, our work. Some of you have volunteered on a basis as well. If you're interested in that, we'd be happy to talk to you um, as well. So that's Love 146 in a very um, short uh, nutshell. But what I wanted to share with you this morning, and I was absolutely amazed on Friday I got, when I sent my notes and, and my slides um, uh, to your team here, they're like, you're not going to believe this. Um, we just finished a whole series on Mr. Rogers. And, and uh, my, my text and, and what I'm going to be talking about this morning is tied into that. And, and I don't know about you, but in the Bible, when, when I see Jesus say something over and over again, I really start to pay attention, right? If, Jesus, if, if you see in the Gospels where it says, again, Jesus said to his disciples, it's sort of like that, like heads up, like pay attention to this because it's something that's really important that I'm going to say it again and again. So perhaps God is really wanting to say something to us about being neighbors and the neighborhood and all of that. Well, last year, I started getting really intrigued because there was this renewed um, resurgence of interest in Mr. Rogers. I mean, and that's why even you guys as a church have spent weeks talking about Mr. And, I, and that's why I, I was amazed Friday when they were, oh, we just did a whole thing, five weeks or six weeks on, I'm like, this proves the point. There's this resurgence of interest in Mr. Rogers. There's been documentaries, like three documentaries, two that have been done this year. One is in the work starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers, which is probably the best choice possible to play Mr. Rogers um, that's coming out next year. And I'm like, what is this resurgence of interest in Mr. Rogers? And my theory on this is that I think what is happening in the world, what is happening in our own country with this rise of cynicism, these div the, the divisiveness that seems to be everywhere, we're living in a culture that seems to be becoming more and more toxic, that there is this ache and a longing for kindness again. That things have gotten mean. It's mean out there. And so when there's this taste of what could be possible in the neighborhood, of kindness and beauty and image of, image of God stuff, there's this resonance inside of us that's like, yes, 
Yeah, so I think this resurgence is not by accident. I think there's a longing and an ache that is rising in a culture that seems to be getting more and more toxic for something beautiful, for beauty to be uh, seen again in the neighborhood. And, And what's interesting about the whole Mr. Rogers thing to me is that we have this picture of Mr. Rogers being this timid, mild-mannered person, and I don't think that was necessarily the case when you actually check this out, and you guys have been talking about this, this, this man, Mr. Rogers, but he was pretty radical. He was actually very radical, oftentimes almost a prophetic voice into the culture um, of his time, and, and in fact, it was interesting to me that one of the first episodes of, uh, that Mr. Rogers um, did, and he was brilliant in um, humanizing who we would call the other. You know, it, we, it, you know, being able to look at people, um, whether it's race or disabilities um, or the enemy as other, he wanted to diffuse that and say, man, they're not other. It's a situation of can we see the other or who we call the other actually as neighbor? And if we can, then what is our responsibility to our neighbor? And he was brilliant at this. In fact, one of his first episodes, he even dealt with the whole concept of other um, by having King Friday um, become afraid. He was fearful of the other to the point where he actually spent the episode building a wall and actually had border guards surrounding his castle because he was afraid of the other. This was back in the 1960s. Mr. Rogers is addressing walls and border guards. And it's like, whoa, this was radical stuff that Mr. Rogers was saying. What if we broke those things down? That maybe our fear could potentially be something that keeps us from loving our neighbor or seeing the other actually as our neighbor. In fact, another episode, I think it was like the third or fourth episode that Mr. Rogers did, it was during a news week that was really a a horrific news week, and I believe it was 1968, and it made headline news. There was an incident that happened in a motel in the South where a a black family was staying in this motel, and they were swimming in the motel pool. The owner of the motel came out and was like, get out of my pool, I don't want a black family swimming in my pool. And the family said, no, we paid for our room, we paid to stay in this motel, we're swimming in this pool, and they got into this conflict to the point where uh, the owner of the motel took acid and poured acid into the pool. Some of you are old enough, you remember this story, it was headline news. It was, it was horrific, the pictures, you could, you could Google this and see the pictures of them scrambling to try to get out of the water because of the burning acid in the water. That very week, Mr. Rogers decided to take that thing on, and he had an episode where he was sitting, um, and it was a hot day in the neighborhood, he was sitting in a chair, and he had his shoes and socks off, and he was, he was cooling his feet in the water in a kiddie pool, and Officer Clemens, a black police officer, came um, into the neighborhood, and Mr. Rogers said, oh, Officer Clemens, you look hot and sweaty. Would you like to join me? And Officer Cummins was like, no, I don't think I, I better do that. And Mr. Rogers insisted, no, really, join me. It's a hot day. Cool off with me. And, and Officer Clemens takes off his, um, so- his shoes and socks, and the camera zooms in on Mr. Rogers' very white feet in the same pool with black feet next to his, and he just looks into the camera, and he doesn't say the words, but you see this glimmer in Mr. Rogers' eye, kind of like, what do you think about that? Mr. Rogers breaking the box of the other to pieces. That's not timid, that's not mild-mannered, that's radical. I love um, this quote by Cecilia Gonzalez-Andreo, and you can see this up here um, 
She says, she says this, she says, whether crouching in small cave dwellings or rushing among the skyscrapers of our modern cities and in farms, fishing villages, and everywhere in between, human groups have asked themselves, who belongs with us? Who does not? Who is my enemy? Who is my friend? Who must I care about? Who can I actually ignore? Who must I protect? Who may I harm? It is a daunting challenge that the New Testament summarizes in four words, who is my neighbor. And then you're very familiar with this passage. You guys walked through the whole thing, but I want to read it again to remind us in um, uh, Luke chapter 10, Jesus addresses this whole uh, thing about who is my neighbor by telling the classic story that we all know where it says on verse 25, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Isn't it interesting that Jesus actually um, talks about loving your neighbor as a condition of salvation? Really interesting. If you do this, if you become a neighbor and love your neighbor, you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, then who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side and said, thoughts and prayers. No, it actually doesn't say that. I just kind of added that in there, um, because that's what we do oftentimes to bail out. Um, to bail out of immersing ourselves into the pain and the brokenness of our neighbor. We throw out a quick thoughts and prayers, and maybe we actually do think about it. Maybe we actually do pray about it, and that's beautiful and everything. But it's interesting because as you see through this parable, Jesus uses over and over again um, this concept of do this. If you do this, this is what's going to make the difference. Not talk about it, not pray about it, not think about it, but actually do this. And then it goes, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Oh, you guys, if the world ever needed more merciful people, we need more merciful people now. God, help us to be found by you as people of mercy, of people who are tender hearted. And it's interesting to me in that we sometimes sanitize these very familiar stories. But this story was incredibly offensive. You know, you guys, I think you're doing this whole new series about fruitcake and, and all of that and how the fruitcake enters the scene and it's all, it's like, ah, the fruitcake. Man, oftentimes Jesus is kind of like that fruitcake to his followers and to religious people because he, a lot of what he said was incredibly offensive to the religious nature in all of us. And this was one of those stories. And, and it's interesting that we even call this story the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't give the title of, to the Samaritan, Good Samaritan. In fact, the people that he was talking to saw the Samaritan as anything but good. 
In fact, right before this chapter, the disciples were going through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, and nobody in Samaria, Samaria gave, offered them a meal, a place to stay, nothing. They wanted to find a place where they could set up a meal or a place to stay, and the Samaritans were like, keep walking, man. You're not staying here. We've got nothing for you. We hate you. You hate us. Keep walking. And this, by the time the disciples get to Jesus, the disciples, James and John, looks at Jesus, and they, and they tell him what happened. Man, we just walked through Samaria. I hate those guys. They hate us. They wouldn't even give us a meal. They wouldn't give us a place to stay. Can we call fire down from heaven and kill them all? This is what James and John saying to Jesus. And we laugh at that, but sometimes does our heart go in that direction when it comes to who we call our enemies? You guys, this is really convicting stuff. But we sanitize, we go, the good Samaritan. These guys didn't see Samaritans as good at all. Somebody else put that title in your Bible. Good Samaritan. We sanitize. We have um, charities named after the Good Samaritan. I was born in a hospital in New York called Good Samaritan Hospital. And so we made this whole thing, but this was unbelievably offensive because Jesus took the enemy and made him the hero of the story. They hated that. It's like, oh my gosh, why couldn't it be one of us? That was the hero, but no, it's the enemy. And it was very purposeful, very intentional. And man, just to kind of put that into context so that we would understand it more, it would be the equivalent of Jesus saying, hey, conservative, the liberal is your neighbor. Hey, liberal, the conservative is your neighbor. Hey, Christian, the atheist is your neighbor. Hey, atheist, the Christian is your neighbor. Hey, Republican, the Democrat is your neighbor. Hey, Democrat, the Republican is your neighbor. Hey, NRA member, the gun reform activist is your neighbor. Hey, gun reform activist, the, the NRA member is your neighbor. Hey, pro-choice person, the pro-life person is your neighbor. Hey, pro-life person, the pro-choice person is your neighbor. It goes on and on. You guys, there's this Pew Research piece that came out in May where the Pew Research Center asked Americans if the U.S. had a responsibility to accept refugees, and no group based on education, race, age, religious, or political factors was less supportive of the idea of taking care of refugees than white evangelical Protestants. What if we saw the refugees as our neighbors? Would that be a different statistic? You guys, this is convicting, and it cuts me to the core. But we have this tendency to take these powerful and sometimes offensive stories that Jesus tells. We sanitize them, or we figure out ways, well, it's, that's a political, that's, that's up to the government, you know, and all of these different things. And it's, it's, it reminds me of this Frederick Buchner quote where he retells the story of the Good Samaritan the way oftentimes we try to weasel out of hard things that Jesus is asking us to do. And he tells the story this way. He says, when Jesus said to love your neighbor, a lawyer who was present asked him to clarify what he meant by neighbor. He wanted a legal definition that he could refer to in case the question of loving one ever happened to come up. He presumably wanted something on the order of a neighbor, hereinafter referred to as the party of the first part, is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence, unless there is another person of Jewish descent, hereinafter to be referred to as the party of the second part, living closer to the party of the first part than one is oneself. In which case, the party of the second part is to be construed as neighbor to the party of the first part, and one is oneself relieved of all responsibility of any kind whatsoever. <laughs> you see what's happening here? It's like, I'll find a way out of this hard thing that Jesus is asking of me. And then he goes on, and he says, instead, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the point of which seems to be that your neighbor is to be construed as anybody who needs you. And the lawyer's response 
is left unrecorded. Brian Zond uh, goes on and he says um, this. He, he, he says, the biblical test case for love of God, and this is powerful, is love of neighbor. The biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. Man, see, we have this ability to create this separate box of human beings called the other. And if we could take them out of the human box and put it into this box called the other, then we can dehumanize them and then we can hate, we can see as enemy instead of neighbor and all of that and we are relieved of responsibility. And Jesus just, with this story, breaks the other box to pieces. There is no other. There is neighbor. And here is your responsibility as a follower of Jesus. And oftentimes that other that is enemy, is who we would consider enemy. And I love what um, Dorothy Day, she says, I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. Wow. I don't know about you, but that cuts me again to the core. Anne Lamott says it this way, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Wow. Ouch. I think what happens and why we create the other as enemy is oftentimes we're just afraid of the other. We don't understand the other. And I love what 1 John 4 says this, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. This is the stuff that Mr. Rogers dealt with all the time. That man, if you love, then you don't have to be afraid because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You know, there's the classic Mr. Rogers song that we're also familiar with that I think we don't actually l really listen or pay attention to the lyrics. And maybe you guys, I, I think I understand that, that Mike even like played the role of Mr. Rogers, came out as Mr. Rogers, which is just a terrifying thought to me. But, um, <laughs> and you've probably heard the song a million times. And unfortunately, when, as soon as you hear the lyrics, the melody comes into your head. And because the melody comes into your head, maybe we lose the depth and, and the prophetic edge that's actually in the words of this song. And I, earlier last year, I was reading the, the words to this song, and as I read it actually out loud, it was just shredding me with these questions that are asked. And I'm going to read it to you. Try not to hear the melody as you hear these words again. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. Really? Put in, fill in the blank there. I always wanted a neighbor just like you and put your enemy in there. Maybe your enemy is a group of people. Maybe your enemy or the other in your own life is an individual person or whatever. Put that, the, that group of people in that saying. Put that individual in that saying. And how hard does that word now become? I always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. Really? Oftentimes we use this expression when the other or enemy moves into our neighborhood. We basically have this expression that goes, there goes the neighborhood. Right? But for believers, there's a deeper calling to us to love our neighbor 
So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? What does the neighborhood even look like? And here's where it gets really hard. The neighborhood is terrifying. The neighborhood, oftentimes, the the global neighborhood, is a scary place. I think about the work that we do in Love 146. 16 years ago, when I stood in a brothel with criminal investigators looking through the windows and seeing young girls with matching red dresses on, having the dignity of a name stripped from them, just numbers pinned to their dresses, and people on this side of the glass that were purchasing them um, like commodities to be used and abused, I'm like, this is the neighborhood? What does the neighborhood look like for these kids? It's terrifying. Frederick Buechner said it this way. He said, here is the world, or here is the neighborhood. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. The neighborhood is a terrifying place, but there's also beauty that can be found in that neighborhood if we look for it, and we're part of bringing beauty into the neighborhood. And here's what's so crazy about finding beauty there. You know who's teaching me how to find beauty in the neighborhood? Children that we work with. I have been stunned in the 16 years that I've been doing this work that the children that we serve as Love 146 are still somehow able to see wonder and beauty in the terrifying neighborhood. I don't know how they do it. And I'm still trying to figure that out. But I'm in awe all the time. And and when you spend time with them and you hear their stories and you hear um, where they've come from, but then how they see the world still as beautiful. We just had a thing recently where um, we were so, like, just blown away by this posture in these children. We asked them, what makes the world still a wonderful place for you? How do you still see the world as, as wonderful? And this is how they responded. These are exact quotes from kids who are in our care. What makes the world wonderful is being able to play and work and go to beautiful places. What makes the world wonderful is when no one harms my family and I can actually finish my studies. I'm hopeful that someday I'll reach my dream. What makes the world wonderful is being able to play happily here with Love 146. What makes the world wonderful are love, unity, harmony, cooperation. What makes the world or neighborhood wonderful are the clouds, sun, birds, trees, flowers, grass, mountains, and people showing love, generosity, and treating each other as brothers and sisters. You guys, these are are quotes coming from kids who you think would have no ability anymore to see the world as beautiful, to see the neighborhood as a beauty would, but they still can somehow. I'm amazed at that. Little Claudia, 12 years old, in our care, she says this, it feels great to imagine that in the past we were the ones being helped by other people, but now we are the ones who help others. That's from a 12-year-old that is not only seeing that, man, that in the neighborhood I was helped, but, man, I want to be a contributor in the neighborhood. I want to learn how to love my neighbor. She's basically saying, one day it was me in the ditch on the side of the road, and people passed by me time and time and time again. The only people that noticed me were people that hurt me. But, man, someone found me there. People found me there and took care of me, and now I want to be that to my neighbor. I want to be that to other people. That's a 12-year-old who's teaching us how to love again. One of the things that they did in this exercise um, of of, of seeing the world as beautiful, our kids want, they're aware that you exist. They're aware that there are people who give generously 
so that we can have a safe place that we, we can, that we can recover our childhoods again. We're aware that there are people who give generously to make that possible. We want to be able to give something back to those people. And so they did this exercise where they wanted to send messages to you and to me and to people who, who maybe have never met them face to face but give generously like you do in this Christmas offering every year. And so what they did was they traced their hands. They had a blast tracing their hands and wrote little messages and sent them to us to be able to read to you. And I have those with me this morning. So, in the neighborhood, these are words to you from really young children. Maybe this is a word that you needed to hear actually this morning in the neighborhood. These are from from children, listen to this. You are stronger than you think. You make the world better. I'm okay, I hope you are too. Look at the size of this hand, you guys. Speak up, play, you matter. Every superhero has different powers, I love that. Take care of the world, tomorrow is waiting. It's okay to cry. Let others help. All of us should be loved. Dignity is priceless. Give light to others. Do all you can. You'll find the right path. Maybe one of you needed to hear that this morning from a child. I love this. Be brave. Sorry. Keep going. This is from children who live in the neighborhood. You know, last year, or earlier this year, I was at our safe home in the Philippines, and a five-year-old girl who's in our care, she comes running up to me, she was so excited, because on the farm, we have a farm that's attached to our, our, our home for girls there, and um, uh, we grow vegetables and everything, and, and, and we have animals there, and, and all of that, and, and she was so excited because the goats, there were some goats that just had baby goats, and I don't know if you've ever seen baby goats, but they're hilarious. I mean, you could just YouTube baby goats, and there's like a million YouTube videos of baby goats jumping around because they're absolutely hilarious. And so she grabs me by the hand, and she pulls me down to where the farm is. And as we're walking down there hand in hand, we get to where the goats are, and all these baby goats are jumping all over the place. They, they sort of just boing straight up and down. They're jumping on each other's backs and everything, and she's laughing hysterically at, at the goats and everything. I'm laughing hysterically until I notice the size of the hand that's holding mine. And I'm like, I should not be holding the hand of a five-year-old girl in a safe home. She should be home with a family who's protecting her, who's loving her, but she's not. And then the next thought is like that, what has happened in the neighborhood? And then the next thought after that is that, but it's because people showed up in the neighborhood that she's now getting her childhood back and she's able to laugh and giggle again, watching baby goats play. The neighborhood's a mess, but beauty shows up when we show up and we learn what it looks like to love our neighbor. Last thought, Cecilia um, says this, she says, we could say using theological language that neighbor here is the one who has made by God, shares our imago Dei, the image of God. We're variations on a theme, the theme of finite yet strikingly beautiful and varied images of God who need each other. If we can learn to see the other, if we can learn to actually see our enemy as an image bearer of God, 
We would act differently in the neighborhood. We would learn again to love our neighbor. We'd be able to have the posture of little kids in a safe home where we're able to see beauty again in the neighborhood because we would be part of bringing that beauty there. You guys, I'm not there yet. My personal struggle in this are the people who harm children. It's so hard for me not to see them as enemy. It's so hard for me to wrap my head around how do I love? How do I see the image of God in that person? But it's still the hard thing that Jesus says, this is my call for you. This is your Samaritan. And we all have them in our lives. And God's asking us to step it up. So this parable is all about how we act in the neighborhood. It's about seeing and being. It's about seeing your neighbor not as enemy, other, or different, but as image bearers of God. It's about being a neighbor, showing mercy, making the neighborhood beautiful by our action. You know, we're in the first Sunday of Advent right now where we celebrate hope. John chapter 1, very familiar passage. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what's really powerful? The message version of the Bible says this, the word moved into the neighborhood. (laughs) There it is, it's what Christmas is about, God moving into the neighborhood. Those of you that may follow me on social media or whatever, you'll see that my, the two questions I ask myself at the end of every, every day, did I love well, and was I about the things that matter, and I've added to that, did I love well my neighbors? Was I about the things that matter in the neighborhood? So Father, we come to you this morning, and we say, man, convict us if you need to when it comes to seeing our enemy, when it comes to seeing the other as neighbor, as an image bearer who carry your image. And Father, would you remind us, especially in this Christmas season, that we're not alone in the neighborhood. That Father, this whole season we celebrate you moving into the neighborhood as well. And would people around us, would our neighbors around us experience Emmanuel, God in the neighborhood, through how we treat our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more information about Parkway Fellowship, find us online at parkwayfellowship.com. You can also download our mobile app for access to the most recent messages, video content, and much more.